0: at all, like almost as though it's an anti-commitment kind of thing, but I I don't think that's actually what is going on here. I don't believe that Jesus is telling us we can't take oaths of any kind or that you know, we can't take marriage vows or that we can't swear in court if we're, if we're signed in or something like that. Uh, there are some people throughout history that have taken this that way, where they say they've refused to even like, testify under oath in court because they believe that the, the Bible instructing them not to do so. Uh, but I think that's actually a misinterpretation of what Jesus is saying here. Um, and here's why. Well, first off, let's say what exactly is an oath, okay? So an oath, simply defined, it's, it's a solemn promise, often invoking a divine witness regarding one's future action or behavior, okay? So it's, it's a promise about something that you're going to do, and there's oftentimes, there has to be some sort of witness. Oftentimes you're calling God as a witness, um, but it, it's a form basically of saying I'm promising that I'm going to do this thing, and there are other people that see it to, and hear it to be able to hold me accountable to it. Okay, now not all of these oaths are bad. This is why I would say that there's no way Jesus is making just a total prohibition against oaths of any kind. Okay, here's a few reasons why. First off, God commanded Israel to swear by his name. You can look at this in Deuteronomy 10.20. He says, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him and cling to him, and you shall swear by his name. As a matter of fact, there were even sometimes in the Old Testament law that literally required you to swear an oath. So for example, Exodus 22, there's a situation where someone um, borrows a, uh, they have a sheep, an ox, a donkey, if it gets hurt, they have to literally swear an oath um, that they haven't taken it, okay? So I have the reference up there on Exodus 22. Uh, There's another uh, situation in Numbers 5 where you can see a woman, if she's accused of adultery, has to swear an oath promising that she didn't do that. So you'll see that uh, sometimes God is even literally commanding people in his scripture that there are times where it's appropriate to take oaths. And uh, you can also see that there are positive examples scripturally of people taking oaths. Um, and, and not just in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, you'll see that Paul did this. Uh, 2 Corinthians, the book we just preached through last semester. He, he, he does this, look at this, 2 Corinthians one twenty-three. But I call God as, as witness to my soul that to spare you I did not come again to Corinth. So if you were here with us, if you remember what was going on, uh, Paul was basically defending himself against some of these attacks that were coming from Corinth. Clearly there had been some sort of agreement that he was going to visit there in person, and he had to change plans and not do that. And so he's saying, hey, I call God as my witness. That's what you're doing when you take an oath, uh, that it was to spare you that I didn't come to to Corinth. It was for your good that I had to make that decision to change plans. Um, Jesus also Uh, spoke under oath when he was on on trial uh, before he got crucified. Uh, I won't read the the reference for you there, but if you want to look it up for yourself in Matthew 26, uh, 62 to 64, he's literally charged under oath to speak. He's been silent the whole time, but then he actually starts to speak there after he's charged under oath. Uh, We see in Hebrews 6, 13 to 17, that it references how God himself even swears oaths sometimes. Look at this. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath okay so we, we see God isn't trying to give us some sort of blanket prohibition against any oath of every single kind so if Jesus isn't pro, uh, prohibiting this when he's giving the Sermon on the mountain there what exactly is he doing what is he teaching us about kingdom culture and I would say quite simply all that Jesus is doing is he's teaching us to be honest people and that our words should be so reliable that we don't even need oaths okay this is why he says just let your yes be yes let your no be no when he says not to swear an oath, he, he goes through some examples that were actually common to what people were doing in that day. All right, so he talks about don't swear by heaven, don't swear by earth, or Jerusalem, or your own head. Uh, all right, so those might even seem strange to us, right? Because people aren't oftentimes in our culture swearing by Jerusalem, you know? Uh, but, but here's what was happening there. Uh, in, in our day, maybe people swear on their dead grandma's grave, you know, or something like that. Um, but the, the point of what they were doing was that they were trying to get around directly swearing by the Lord, because they feared that if they would do that, there was no way that they could get out of their commitment. So in essence, these other things were done so that they could make their oath less binding, suggesting that they wanted to leave the door open to not actually holding to their word. Okay, it's kind of the ancient equivalent of making a promise with your fingers crossed. That That's what they were trying to do here. And Jesus is calling that stuff out. You can actually see him speak on this in a little bit more detail in Matthew 23, 16 to 22. I'll read this. Um, Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men. Which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and the one who sits on it. So what what Jesus is telling us not to do here is to make oaths that we're trying, where we're trying to give ourselves a way out, all right? It's like essentially the equivalent of Uh, don't go into marriage with a prenuptial agreement, you know, kind of a thing. That's essentially what's going on here. So, God wants us to be people that are righteous, not just on the outside, but also on the inside. And with this practice of making these oaths might make you seem like a really trustworthy person on the outside, but on the inside, there was an intent to deceive and to get out of holding their word. And as a matter of fact, when you look all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, this is the exact kind of behavior that Jesus is calling out, right? He, he, does, he wants us to be more than just people that don't murder. He wants us to be people that aren't angry with our brother. He wants us to be more than just people that don't commit adultery. He wants us to be people that don't even lust. And in the same thing here, he doesn't just want us to be people that look like we're trustworthy on the outside because we make oaths, but he wants us to be people that actually are trustworthy and honest and that our word carries real weight. We mean what we say and we do what we say. So this means that Christians aren't people that back out of commitments. We're people that do what we say we are going to do. That is the culture of God's people. Now, of course, there are reasonable exceptions to this. Some of those things might include one, like every now and then, there are circumstances that are beyond your control. So if you made a commitment to be at church this morning, and let's say it was six feet of snow out there or something, that's a circumstance that's outside of your control. You, you had legitimate uh, desire to do it, but you, you couldn't necessarily control it. James speaks to this. James 4, 13 to 15. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. Okay, so we aren't entirely in control of what tomorrow brings. We don't even know if we'll be alive tomorrow. So yes, there are every now and then times that are uh, you're not going to be able to fulfill a commitment because it's actually outside your control. Uh, there also might be times that the Lord gives you guidance that is legitimately best to change plans. We talked about the Apostle Paul earlier, how he had to have had some arrangement where he said he was going to visit Corinth and then later decided that it was actually best not to. Um, don't use this as an excuse to say, like, oh, well, you know, I, I said I was going to get coffee with you, but the Lord told me not to. <laughs> there, there may be, that uh, that might be possible, but I would be cautious about that, okay? By and large, if it's because you don't want to get out of bed at 6 a.m. to meet your friend for coffee because you had a late night last night, you should still follow through with that commitment unless there's really a legitimate reason that the Lord is leading you not to do that. Um, And then the third, just the idea that when uh, sometimes you might have made a foolish commitment where fulfilling it would literally cause you to sin. Um, So there's there's this kind of crazy story. If you've never read the Book of Judges, it's got a lot of crazy stuff in it. Um, But there's this one story where there's this guy named Jephthah. He makes an extremely foolish vow uh, where he goes out to lead Israel's armies against. these enemies, and he promises this here, Judges eleven thirty 30 to 31. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord, if you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. All right, God did not command Jephthah to do that, and it was an extremely foolish thing to commit to do, because if you read the story, you'll see uh, the first one that comes out of his house to greet him is actually his daughter, uh, his only daughter, um, and Israel was very messed up in the time of Judges. He actually does carry through and sacrifice her. That is not at all something that God is about. He hates child sacrifice, but um, that obviously fulfilling a vow like that would not be a good idea, but, but there's other times where maybe you've made some sort of a commitment, and you realize that, man, for me to fulfill this would actually require me to sin. Then, of, of course, you shouldn't go through with following that. Um, So yes, there's exceptions when we must renege on our commitments, uh, but these are usually not the things that cause us problems in holding our commitments. Usually it's because we don't feel like holding to them. Uh, Usually it's because we want a backdoor to be able to escape out of them. Maybe a better option came up, right? Like I know that that's that's a huge thing. I was reading an article uh, yesterday where it talked about uh, how FOBO is the new FOMO. Okay, so instead of fear of missing out, it's a fear of better options, right? I'm terrified to commit to something because what if a better option will come up for me later? You know, so maybe you said you're going to spend time with a friend, but maybe a more interesting person has invited you to do something else. Or uh, you said that you're going to help someone move, but then you got invited to a party at the same time. It could become very tempting for us to renege on our commitments there. Or uh, maybe it's going to be hard to follow through on your commitment. So you've decided not to do so. Maybe you have a meeting scheduled with a friend to discuss something difficult, and you know that the conversation is not going to be pleasant, and so you bail on the commitment to meet up. Or maybe you're in a marriage where things are not going as planned and fixing it seems like too much work, and you would rather just call it quits. You know, since holding commitments can be so difficult, it can be tempting to try to avoid just making them all together right? Your yes can mean yes and your no can mean no if you never use either of those words and it's just always maybe. And and frankly, I think that's the the approach that a lot of us kind of try to take here. It might seem like an easy solution and there is something to be said for not making too many commitments. We should be wise about the things that we commit to. However, we cannot live the life that God has called us to without making commitments, I'm not saying that you need to go and commit to everything under the sun, but at the same time, there are some very real commitments that God has called you to. And and the first is to himself, okay? Very, very clear. First and foremost, if you are a Christian, you must be fully and completely devoted and committed to following the Lord. Look at this. You see this time and time and time again. Matthew 16, 24 to 25. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus calls you to lay down your own ambitions, your own desires, to deny yourself, to take up your cross and to follow him. That is a commitment. He said in Luke nine sixty two, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Basically saying, when you, when you commit to me, you commit to me, you keep your eyes focused on me, you don't look back, you don't get distracted by other things. This is a particularly uh, challenging passage here in Luke 14, 25 to 33. Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and he's not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace." So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Man, that, that's a heavy passage, right? Like Jesus is making it very clear. The idea of I am kind of a Christian, but I don't take it too seriously is literally not an option. Like, like if, if, you, if you think that that's an option, you're not reading the scripture, you, you've, or you've created some other kind of thing that's not based off of what Jesus said. Because the, the call to follow Jesus is extremely high. Now, when he's, he says here you know, that you have to hate your father, mother, brother, he, he, it doesn't mean hate in the sense of how you and I would generally think of hate. right? Like he doesn't want us to be like plotting how we can bring the downfall of our parents you know, or something like that. that that's not what's, what's going on. But what, what, that, what he's using with that term there is the idea that my, your love for me is so great that when you put the comparison, even to these greatest relationships— like your parents, or your you know your spouse, your children, your even your own life, that it, it's it looks like hate because the, the, the gap is so great. You know, of course, Jesus called us to love our neighbors, as you love yourself. He's not calling you to literally hate someone, but you see this like he he demands a devotion that is incredibly deep. He said, "There, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions." you know, what does that mean? Like, God owns ownership. He has ownership over everything. Yes, you're a steward of some things. Like, I don't think it means that you have to sell all your clothes and walk around naked or something like that. Um, But you, you understand that even everything that you own, whatever it is, it's really not yours. It's been given over to Jesus. He can call you to do with it whatever he wants to, and you hold it with an open hand because it's not really yours. It belongs to him. You know, uh, the Apostle Paul understood this. And when you look at his life, you know, he, he talked about how he doesn't live for himself anymore, but it's, it's Christ who lives within him. That I no longer live for myself, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. So as a Christian, one yes that you are required to make is the commitment to follow Jesus. And I know that seems like almost so basic, but I think that, that grinds against us. It's worth reminding us over and over again. I have to remind myself of that truth constantly. That as a Christian, I have given my life over to following Jesus, and that is a commitment with everything that I am. And second, not only does God call us to commit to him, but he calls us to commit to each other. You know, the second greatest commandment after loving God with everything, right? All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, is that we're called to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. You see, when when you're saved, you are adopted into a family of believers that you are called to be committed to. We are actually a body that needs one another to function properly. Okay? So so in order for the body of Christ to function properly, we have to be committed to working together. Look at this. uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 14. Just as a body, though one, has many parts but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. What, what would happen if, you're, if each body part was committed to its own agenda? <laughs> we wouldn't be able to do anything, right? Like, your, your body only works because each part is committed to working together. And, and we've been brought into a family where we have to realize that this is the kind of life God has called us to. The early church understood this. Acts 2.42 says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. There, there was a kind of devotion to one another, right? They were literally devoting uh, to, to fellowship. That's a significant thing, right? Like, it, it wasn't just this idea of, yeah, we'll hang out with each other whenever we can get around to it, or it'd be kind of nice to see you when I can. They were committed to being in each other's lives. And this is the same thing that Paul uh, instructed the Roman church to do. He says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. And so as God has called us to this all-in commitment to himself, he has also com- called us to be committed to loving and serving and working with each other. Now, I want you to remember, I, I, you're going to hear me beat this drum over and over and over again as long as you hear me preach, that everything that God calls us to is for his glory and our good. God doesn't give us commands that are intended to rob our joy. He's not trying to take your fun away. So if he tells us something that's different from what our culture says, that means that what he says is actually going to help you and what the culture says is going to hurt you. Yes, we need to be wise about the kind of commitments that we make and how many of them we make. But commitment can bring incredible blessing with it. It creates possibilities, okay? And, and uh, yes, commitment does restrict some possibilities, but it also creates other ones. And I don't think we always see this. It might even seem counterintuitive, right? Because we naturally think of commitment as being something that's restrictive, right? For example, if I'm in a marriage uh, or even a committed dating relationship, I, I, uh, if I'm not in that, I can go on a date with anybody that I want. But if I'm married or I'm in a relationship, my options for women to go on a date with have been reduced to one. so It seems restrictive, right? And while commitment does restrict certain possibilities, it opens up other ones that could not exist without it. Okay, and, and so here's some of those things that commitment creates possibilities for. One is depth. The trust that comes with commitment can create great depth that could not be in a relationship without it. The commitment of a marriage is what allows it to be so much deeper than what you can have with someone that you're dating or that you go on a, I don't know, a Tinder date with or something like that. There's there's not the same kind of depth there. Even if you've been with someone, dating for someone for 10 years, it's different when, when you've actually said, we are committed to each other till death do us part for richer, for poor for sickness and health. Like, that you're able to experience a kind of relationship that simply cannot happen if, they, if you don't have that kind of commitment to each other. And guys, you're only going to have great depth in your relationship with God when you truly commit to him. If you try to follow him one foot in, one foot out, it's not going to work. First off, I just made it very clear to you through scripture, like Jesus doesn't accept that kind of discipleship. There's one kind of disciple that that Jesus accepts, and it's the one that's fully committed to him. And and, you know, if, if we don't fully commit to the Lord, we're not going to experience the kind of abundant life that he offers. You're probably just going to end up frustrated as you're torn between a commitment to him and a commitment to other things. And so yes, a commitment to God will restrict some of the things that you can do. You won't be able to live the same way as everyone around you but you will experience God in a way that you wouldn't be able to if you weren't committed to him in fullness. You know, one of the other possibilities that commitment creates is great achievement, right? Like most great achievements aren't, uh, they aren't accomplished in isolation and they aren't accomplished quickly. They take a committed group of people working together for a sustained period of time. You know, you you hear that phrase, Rome wasn't built in one day, right? But like yeah, it was built by a lot of people working together over a long time to be able to establish something. And if people just kind of all had this mentality of, well, I'll do something when it's convenient for me, I'll, I'll make it if I can, I'll work on it if I can, you're not really going to accomplish anything great with that kind of uh, level of commitment. One other thing that commitment opened up a possibility for is focus. More choices are not always beneficial right? Sometimes the fact that commitment eliminates choices is actually a blessing just because it allows us to focus on one thing, okay? There was a really interesting experiment uh, that was done with jelly. I don't know if you guys have, have ever, have ever uh, read this before. Um, there was a, a psychology experiment that was done uh, with, it was a Columbia Business School professor and a Stanford psychologist, and uh, They showed shoppers at a grocery store, uh, there was one group that was given six choices of jam, and uh, there was another group that was given 24 choices of jam, (laughs) okay? (laughs) That's a lot of jam. Now, the, the group that was given six choices of jam was actually more likely to make a purchase of some kind than the group that was shown 24 choices of jam. And with follow-ups to those groups, the the group that only had the six choices reported greater satisfaction with their choice than the people in the group of 24. Sometimes the fact that we just have to commit to something and and put our our mind to it and go with it and make the best of it actually creates a better uh, situation than if we keep trying to just find the absolute perfect fit. Sometimes you can be so so focused on what you could have that you're unable to appreciate what you do have. You know, and and that leads me to the other possibility that uh, commitment brings, which is contentment, right? Paul was so committed to God and so focused on him that it allowed him to be content in all circumstances, right? This is what he says here. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You see, Paul was focused on one thing, and he always had that one thing Christ who strengthens him, right? And so that allowed him to be content in whatever circumstance it was. If he was. Cons- if he was focused on whether he uh, had the kind of living situation he wanted, or whether he had the clothes that he wanted, or uh, if he had the job that he wanted, or any of those kind of things, if those were the, the things that he was focused on, he would have consistent opportunities to, to be discontent. But, but the one thing that he really wanted to pursue in life was Jesus, and that was the one thing that he always had through every single circumstance. And it created great contentment in him. And guys, if you want contentment in your life, you're far more likely to find that in fully committing to God who wants to give himself to you rather than you are in chasing after a million different things that will, will sometimes you'll get them and sometimes you won't. You know, and, and finally, one other thing that commitment opens the opportunity for is love. When we commit to someone, we are making a loving choice, right? Why? Because when you commit to someone, you have the opportunity to sacrifice for them. We talked earlier about how a commitment requires sacrifice. When you say yes to one thing, that means that you have to say no to something else. When I commit to help someone move, I'm making a loving choice to sacrifice my time and energy at an agreed upon point so I can help them with something that they need. It's a chance for me to be able to show love. And also, you're going to get to show love not just through uh, sacrifice, but also through forgiveness, right? Because if you're committed to someone, you will have to forgive them at some point, right? Because we uh, can't stick together without forgiveness, right? This is, this is why I think that so many relationships don't last very long. I'm not just talking dating relationships, even friend relationships, all this kind of stuff. It, it's so easy to cut people out of our lives when they don't act the way that we want them to. And that's easy to do when we don't have a commitment there. But when we're committed to each other, you say, you know what? I'm going to have to forgive you. I'm going to have to choose to make this work because I'm committed to you, and we're going to stick in this, right? I hope you have that mentality with your marriage, that you realize that there's no backdoor out of this kind of thing. This is a commitment. Whatever problem comes up, we're going to figure out how to work through this together, how to forgive each other and to continue and move on. And guys, honestly, our relationship as a church We're committed to each other, right? Like, there's undoubtedly going to be times that we disappoint each other. There's probably times I'm going to disappoint you as your pastor. There's going to be times your life group leader disappoints you or, you know, whatever. And it it can become easy to just say, well, you know, I'm going to get out of there. But when we have commitment to one another, we have to choose to forgive and we have to choose to address difficult things that we may not want to address, to even help each other grow but the commitment creates the space for us to be able to love and forgive and sharpen each other. You know, speaking of forgiveness, I want you to realize that, yes, God calls us to this incredible commitment to himself and to each other, but also, like, he makes a commitment to us. Right? God has made a commitment to you. And that is shown in so many ways but it's shown most clearly when Jesus Christ took on flesh and walked among us and and chose to go to the cross. You know, I I think of all the, the opportunities that Jesus could have had to turn back from going to the cross, right? Think of all the temptation to do that. I think of him going out into the wilderness and Satan tempting him. He says no, C- continually says no, continually says no, continually says no, lives in perfect purity, committed to the mission that he has. I think of Peter, like Peter is, is one of Jesus' like closest disciples, trying to stop Jesus from doing the very thing he came to do, right? Saying, I, I won't allow you to go get crucified, and, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. I think of Jesus praying in the garden of Gethsemane, sweating blood. If there's any other way, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. There was no other way. The cup wasn't taken from him. Jesus went to the cross, and he drank the cup of God's wrath there. For you and for me, because God is committed to saving us. And when Jesus hung on that cross, he took the punishment that you and I deserve for every bit of sin that we have. God's saying, I want to wipe this away. The, the penalty that you deserve has been paid by Jesus Christ. And Jesus rose from the dead. And he showed that he had conquered death and he ascended into heaven. But there was a promise there too. And that he was going to return again. As angels appeared and, and the disciples were, were staring off in the sky looking at where Jesus went. And they said, he's going to come just as you saw him go. Jesus told his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be with me also. And God makes a commitment to you that if you believe in him, if you come to him for salvation, he's not going to cast you out. Look at the commitment that Jesus makes to us in John 6, 35-40. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you, that you've seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself, will raise him up on the last day. Guys, there, that last day, like there, there's a day of judgment that's coming. There's a day that, that that kingdom of God that we were talking about that's already started to come in a little bit, one day it's going to be ushered in fully. And it's great. Like All that's, that's wrong and evil and sinful and stuff is going to be done away with. But that means that you and I will be under judgment unless we have someone to raise us up and forgive us and pay for our sin. And that's exactly what Jesus did for us. He promises that if you come to him, he'll raise you up on the last day. What a commitment that we have from the Lord. That all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, and that those who believe in Jesus are given the right to become children of God. You know, adopting you as a child is a major commitment. God says, I want to adopt you. I want to adopt you as my kid. I want you to move into my house for eternity. That's a commitment. And so, as I draw to a close here, I just want to ask you, first off, will you commit to God? You see the way that He's committed to you, right? Commitment requires sacrifice. Look at the sacrifice that He made. He had every reason not to go through with it, but He continually did because He's committed to you. Will you be committed to Him? Will you give Him the kind of discipleship that Jesus demands, an all-in discipleship? You know, maybe you need to do this for the first time. Maybe today you're realizing, yeah, I I, I want to follow Jesus. If that's if that's the case, there's going to be people around the room with prayer lanterns on, they'd love to talk with you about that. You know, or, or maybe you've been a Christian for a while, but you just haven't been taking this commitment very seriously. And you want to repent of that, and you want to pray with someone. Like, there's an opportunity for you to do that. Say, I I, I really want to follow Jesus all in in the way that he's actually called us to do. You know... I also want to ask, will you commit to each other? Building real community takes intentional commitment to each other. The church has to be more than just a place that we gather on Sunday mornings. And you know, like I said, I'm thankful for you guys. Way to go, making it here through the snow. That showed commitment in and of itself. But guys, what I care, it's not just about getting here in this room. Like, I love getting here in this room with you guys. I love worshiping with you. I love preaching God's word to you. But this is not the essence of what it means to be a Christian. This is not an end in of itself. This is a means to an end. This is something that we do where we come together because we want to worship. We want to be equipped. We want to see each other. We want to be able to pray for each other. We want to bless each other. And so we come. But I have to ask you, like, you won't have a committed relationship with people unless you choose to make sacrifices and really try to invest deeply in them. If you come here, you sit by yourself, you leave, you don't say hi to anyone, you don't get involved in Life Group, you don't uh, you, you know, make any sort of friendships outside of this, you're not seeing each other any time outside of this one hour, I really don't think that you're going to experience the kind of community that God wants us to be committed to. And so we try to create spaces for you to do that. You know, that's why we do things like Life Group. That's why we do things like The Well, which you heard about earlier, right? Like, we want to create spaces for you to be able to be committed. That's why we're starting this membership class. You know, if you want to say, hey, what does it look like for me long-term, even after college, maybe to, to be committed here and what part of what this church is doing, there's opportunities we're trying to create for you guys to see that. And finally, I want to ask, will you commit to God? Will you commit to each other? And just, will you be a person that commits to what you say? Will you hold to the things that you, that, that you promise? Will your yes be yes and your no be no? Are we going to be a community of people that reflects that culture of God? Because a commitment to Him and a commitment to each other creates honest people, right? (laughs) Because we know that God sees and hears every single word that we speak. He's always a witness. We don't have to invoke Him as a witness under oath. We already know that He sees it. We already know that He hears. And so let's live like people that, that, that know that. And, and you know, when, when we love one another, like we love ourselves, love our neighbors, we love ourselves, of course, like we're going to be committed to actually holding up to the things that we say. Guys, our, our God is a good God. He, he is, is after his glory. He's after your good. Those things are always tied together. And he wants this kingdom culture to invade our here and now. So may we be a people. May we be a church that makes the right commitments, right, that, that, that discerns what's actually important, like that early church did, right? They devoted themselves, the apostles teaching, to fellowship, to breaking bread, to prayer. Let, let's find the important things, let's commit to those things, and let's hold to them. Uh, let's pray. God, we love you, um, and I thank you for the love that you have for us. I thank you for the commitment uh, that you have to us. Um, Jesus, I thank you for that promise that uh, those who come to you, you're not going to cast out. That you'll raise us up on the last day. And uh, Lord, I just I pray that you would help us to be people that model that same kind of commitment that you do. That you were willing to sacrifice. That you were willing to to commit to us even when it wasn't easy or. Uh, when there might have been more comfortable options. Help us to be people that are committed to you with everything we are. Help us to be people that are committed to each other and that hold to our word. We love you, Lord. We want you to be glorified and we pray this in your son's awesome name. Amen.